everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Vodka O'Clock Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Love, and you can find everything that you need to know about me at amberunmasked.com. You can also sponsor my work at patreon.com slash amberunmasked. And don't forget the weekly cat detective stories. They have their own website now. Yes, it got to be so big, taking up so much server space. So you can follow along with Gus and Oliver and the many, many critters and creatures we encounter at catdetectivecases.com. Joining me today is one of my dearest friends, Tracy Heisler, who has a new book out. And this book is um, does contain triggering and possibly upsetting content. So um, I just want to put that out there. We will be talking about sexual abuse and childhood sexual trauma and domestic abuse. So if this is not the show for you, we totally understand. Um, however, if you are looking for a book to relate to, then I suggest you keep listening as you can. And maybe this book will have some answers for you because in it, there are lessons learned at the end of every chapter, which is one of the coolest things I think about how the book is set up. So Tracy, hi, welcome, hi, finally, after like, you know, 20 years. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Amber. Um, so we're going to talk about primarily the, you know, the content of your book, The Shadow in Our Lives, One Family's Recovery from Child Sexual Abuse. And because I do talk to, um, you know, a lot of writers, this, I don't think I've ever talked to anyone about this kind of writing where you're, it's not just a memoir, but it's such a, a powerful subject and survival story. And, you know, I mean, we've always done work together for domestic violence and, you know, helping people and foster kids. So our relationship has always involved that in some way. But uh, I don't think I've ever talked to another writer about it. And it's a lot of crime stuff that we talk about. <laughs> we know we talk very lightly about murder and in these dark, horrible things because they're fictional. So um, now we have to, how, how do you handle writing a nonfiction book that's, I mean, I know it took you years, but it's the story of a particular time of your life that was so unbelievably challenging and hellish at times and yet hopeful other times you man I don't know how you keep, keep <laughs> things going other than like you say for the kids well I think the important part to put into context for your listeners is that I've been on both sides of the table Today, I have a master's degree in counseling psychology. I started my career in domestic violence and sexual assault. I've worked with juvenile and adult offenders. And for the last 22 years, I've worked as an advocate for children in the foster care system, kids who've experienced abuse or neglect. Um, in 2003, on Halloween, actually, 2003, um, my eldest daughter disclosed that my husband, her father, had been sexually molesting her, which was a horrific shock that upended the life that I thought I had right. and my place in it. Um, so I wrote the book as a way to 
provide information and supports to other caregivers. There's so much shame, there's so much fear, there's so much trauma that surrounds child sexual abuse that we find that there are many parents who never tell anyone. And kids inadvertently end up being punished again because they're displaying behaviors that caregivers don't realize are a normal part of recovery from child sexual abuse, whether it's substance abuse, dressing provocatively, having mm -hmm. poor boundaries, not bathing, becoming unkempt, in becoming depressed. All of those are normal things that we end up penalizing and punishing kids for again. Um, so I wanted to share both our family's experience um, and what are some things that I learned, what are some things that I would have done differently if I you know, had it to do over again, um, and then from the professional side of things as well, of what are the best practices that we know help. Right, we've um, come a long way in trauma research and neuroscience, um, reading big thick textbooks uh, and going all the way back to the early 1900s and everything was usually focused, women, women were their own category, okay, we know this, we know women were completely ignored by science and treated for things like hysteria. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, other people, if you were not in the military, you were treated for lunacy. Um, and people just got locked up in these horrible places um, before uh, things started getting better asylum-wise and being treated more holistically. But um, the trauma that we, we speak of today and this big foundation that we have now for learning and exploring more ways is because of veterans. And originally it was called shell shock. And now nobody would use that term. Um, I think the first time I heard of veteran specific PTSD was probably Desert Storm. Uh, I don't think, and that's because I was married to someone who had it. And um, yeah, that was that was difficult. Um, but the you know this many decades later, in such a different part of my life, studying trauma through a yoga perspective, it it's magnificent to understand what the brain will do to protect us. For sure, absolutely, it's it's unbelievable and. I can look at that as an adult and start to understand things because I've you know, read the books, taken the classes, but there are plenty of people who have never been through it or they've heard a lot of things talked about in a more buzz, clickbait way. So when we get to this point of the information age, and everybody is self-diagnosing. Um, it's it's just astonishing to me the number of people, and I don't know if it's just because algorithms connect you to other people that have the same things as you, but I'm like, I think everybody that I follow has like hashtag trauma in their in their posts or trauma informs. It's so common now 
Well, it's common to attach I'm trauma-informed because I read a book or I took a class or I saw a documentary. That's not being trauma-informed. That's recognizing that trauma exists. Um, in my particular line of work in child advocacy, our program has done a great deal of work in just raising awareness in the community to get people to a place of interest of wanting to learn more because we wanted to create a common language about trauma and help um, build a sense of compassion for those kids who are struggling, um, kids who have grown up in a dangerous world right. where being asked to sit quietly in class and not be disruptive and focus on algebraic equations or read this paragraph and then yeah. deconstructed and comprehend what you read when you're busy surveilling your environment looking for threats and danger, it's a very painful disconnect for everyone. So I think the raising awareness part, we're doing a good job of. The learning, the mechanics of it, we're still Oh, there's still in so the much. Of course. So this was 2003 that your daughter came to you and you got the information out of her. So back then, this is before your education, because you had your education on hold, um, what was your reaction to her? Did you, did you believe her? I believed her right away. Okay. Um, my, um, there is child sexual abuse that has been in my family, in my extended family, so I was very aware that it was a reality in addition to the work that I did professionally. Um, and I knew that my daughter would never lie about mm -hmm. something like that. So I absolutely believed her right off the bat. So um, we, my, my ex-husband was um, teaching at a local community college, so he had a class that night, so he was gone. I knew he wasn't going to be home. So I took the kids trick-or-treating because I didn't want to freak the rest of them out. We had five all together, so everybody got dressed. We did that. We watched a scary movie from the 50s, had popcorn. I got them all to bed, and by the time he came home, um, I met him in the driveway and said, you're, you're not coming in. You're not. And that could have turned violent. It could have. And, in, and that was one of the, this is what I learned. Right. I should not have confronted him directly. I should have locked the door, called law enforcement, and had them meet him in the driveway. Right. And that's, um, that was one of my biggest, uh, attention grabbers going through this book was you know every page going oh my gosh the police still aren't there like oh my gosh she didn't call them yet she and and there are mind you again you know the law enforcement depends on where you live depends on your ethnicity your response and your relationship with them may vary greatly so um, when did you get the police involved? I found out on a Friday night and I called the police Sunday morning. Um, the delay for me was not that I wouldn't call the police. My question was, was should I call the police or should I call the child abuse hotline? Mm -hmm. Working in child protection I was trying to evaluate which one would be more beneficial 
for my children and least traumatic for them. Um, I wanted to get insight from one of my colleagues, you know, what should I do? And he blew me off. He thought I was talking about a case and not that it was personal. So I had to make a choice. Um, so I ended up calling the hotline first. Okay. Um, I thought that would get my kids supports quicker than if I had called law enforcement. And this could have been a situation where they just could have come in and taken all of the kids away from you too. It's true. Absolutely. So a lot of people I think would be really terrified to take us to take any steps and this is where we get these, you know, family secrets and we'll try to make it you know, go away. And, and that's exactly why I wrote this book, Amber, because yeah. there are so many people who are paralyzed with fear, paralyzed with shame, worried about, am I going to be in trouble? Am I going to have my kids taken away? Are my kids going to be separated? Are they going to end up in foster care with strangers? So I understand the hesitation that people have to get law enforcement involved, but not is what continues the cycle and allows predators the opportunity to continue finding new victims. Mm -hmm. um, for my ex-husband, this disrupted any plans that he might have had. Right. He ended up um, going to trial, being convicted. He served 46 months in prison and then was in um, a uh, halfway house for another year after that. Um, Admittedly, it ruined his career. He had a PhD. Yeah, he and, and he brings that up. You gave a chapter devoted to his point of view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was a white privileged man that was educated. And, he, you know, it's like, well, how dare you ruin my life? Yeah, he had a doctorate and uh, was in a position now where he couldn't use it yeah. at all. And he's, he's still bitter, reportedly. <laughs> but... You know, you shouldn't shouldn't molest little children exactly. and then, then wonder why you lost everything in it. <clears throat> this was a, a biological child to him? Yes. Okay. Because um, I don't know why, but I only just started in the year 2023 watching SBU. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're behind, I'm, sweetie. <laughs> I'm way seriously behind. Honestly, because I didn't think I could handle the show. Right. And at this point in, in my life, I... I actually can marathon it. Like I, I, I can play four episodes and then switch to cartoons. Um, so it's, I, I've seen, you know, certain episodes where it is a biological relative and other ones where it's like the step, you know, stepmom and her teenage stepson. And, yeah. No, this was, uh, this was his biological child. And one of the things that, um, came out from all of this is it was intergenerational in his family. Right. His father had molested his sisters. The sisters didn't know that each other had been victims until this came out. They all were carrying these burdens alone, thinking it was just them. Um, in talking with his parents, it turned out both of them had been molested as children. His father by a border back in the 30s in the family home. Mm -hmm and um, his mother by one of her relatives, and they had never disclosed until this came out. And it, when I got to their stories, um, that when you explained that history, 
I mean, it's, it's just mind blowing that that, you know, all of a sudden it comes out and they're like, so it happened to me and I turned out fine kind of attitude. And, and that's why it continues. So after the book came out in May, I got a call from one of my ex-sisters-in-law. Um, they had never told their children about the grandfather. And my niece had bought the book and read it and was horrified of to course. find that her grandfather, she, they, all this time they felt like it was just the uncle, not knowing that the grandfather had been a predator too. And I had messaged her and said, you know, I'm really sorry you found out that way. If I had known that your parents hadn't told you, I would have, right, you, you know, I would have given you a heads up. And she said, it just changes the paradigm of my worldview. I'm going to have to adjust. Um, but that's what family secrets do. They mm -hmm. skew our worldview to a way that may not align with reality. It's become almost a, a comedian-type punchline, a comic punchline, where everybody's got that, that one uncle, that funny uncle. It's like that funny uncle who comes to the family gatherings for you know one holiday a year, but you wouldn't leave your kids with him. It's like a strange thing that it's a punchline. Uh, agreed. And I, I think that... Unless it's for coping. I, exactly. And that's what I was going to say. I think people use humor as a way to I, manage. I, I totally do. I mean, I'm, I'm more likely to make fun of something than, you know, like, you know, at funerals. I always say my family puts the fun in funeral. <laughs> <laughs> so there will be drinking and storytelling at funerals. Um, I'm there. Yes. That's all an Irish girl <laughs> needs to hear. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, so the the intergenerational um, problem. I mean, it comes up in a lot of negative things, uh, sometimes great things about families, like you know, it could be alcoholism or drug abuse, or it could be ambition or something or you know talent with music and you know kids who grew up with famous artists or dads and moms and all of a sudden they, you know they become famous and well in this case it was abusing yes. young girls so this was yeah is there is there something you think genetically that's programmed no i don't i don't believe that I believe that it's a learned behavior. I believe in this particular circumstance, um, they lived in an evangelical community mm -hmm. where there was a lot of shame and stigma around sex and sexuality. And I think as my ex-husband was coming into adolescence and exploring any kind of um, sexual expression, he was punished. Um, and it became this um, sorted kind of secret um, that was filled with shame but still enticing right? mm -hmm. um, I'm sure the more something is off limits the more tempting it is exactly for sure and um, once things came out about my father-in-law um, there were no social consequences he wasn't arrested he wasn't 
kicked out of church. His wife didn't divorce him. His kids didn't not talk to him anymore. And so I think that example as well of, well, my dad got away with it, um, emboldened my ex-husband to think that he would too. Do you think he ever confided in anybody? I recommended many times for him to see a therapist. He suffered from a lot of depression, anxiety, um, some kind of uh, social anxiety. He didn't like being in crowds or talking with people. I was very much his best friend. Um, he distilled his problems down to um, worries about money, when in reality that was not hmm. the issue for him. Right. So with this evangelical background, because that is a big part of your marriage to him. Mm -hmm. um, we were a poster child family. Yeah. Um, because you couldn't be together or anything, like you got engaged quickly. You, well, you had to break up with who you would later marry which is like the sweetest story. Um, churches nowadays are problematic. Um, in the Catholic Church, obviously, again, turns, gets turned into a punchline. Um, and I know you're more politically aware than I am, um, but it seems like every time some super conservative person opens their mouth to say something misogynistic and about, you know, things shouldn't change and we need to go, go back to, go back to the fifties. Um, it, it's like a month later, there will be a headline with, Oh, remember when that person said this? Well, guess what? They've been molesting children. Yeah. I mean, just like that guy, was he from Florida? You know, who like adopts. <laughs> it, it's just. It, it's the hypocrisy that's yeah. horrifying. And that's another reason that I wrote the book because I'm trying to raise awareness for the population at large that these things do happen. Mm -hmm. It's not the boogeyman who's wearing a trench coat you know, lurking around your town. It right. could be someone in your family. It could be someone in your parish. It can be someone at school because they, child molesters, look for spaces to be with kids. Um, and they are incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. They're incredibly yeah. charismatic. They fill a void in a family. Um, yeah, that's it's why like, oh, let me take your, your son fishing because exactly. he doesn't have a dad. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's not to say that all men who step up and help children right. are like that. But people need to be aware that there are people who do. And I'm, I'm yeah. not going to say just men because there are no, female child molesters as well. But, but there is a pattern that's followed of grooming when people are that's, targeting children. Yeah, that's, that was something that I loved. Um, I know I put it in... I, I reviewed the book and I reviewed it... Um, honestly, ex you know, explaining that we were friends, um, that you have, yeah, how you explain grooming. Again, another word that's become a buzzword for 
politicians. I mean... Which makes me insane, by the way. Being gay does not make you a groomer. Being mm. trans does not make you a groomer. Being a, a woke person does not make you a groomer. Yeah. Um, the other thing about my book is I tried to purposefully make it short. Most people can read it in two, two and a half hours because people in crisis don't have the time to do a deep dive into my trauma to get to what they need for mm-hmm. help. Um, so I was very selective in the things that I talked about, um, and grooming was one of them yeah. because not enough people know that it's a thing and what it is is a thing until their family's been impacted. Right. And it might not be, you know, whatever you're seeing on the, you know, exactly pop culture news or whatever. Um, I read it and it took me a lot longer. A, I'm a slow reader, but B, because there's only so much my brain wants to digest of 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 this subject. So I appreciate that it was a short book, but here's how you um, listed grooming in these stages, identifying a victim, gaining their trust, filling a need isolating the child in a special relationship and that one I think is very important sexualize the relationship which is usually slowly and maintain the control Um, which I think I mean obviously this happens to all genders but I think when it comes to boys I think this is how they really get brought into a, a predatory situation for sure. And the, the statistics are staggering. According to the CDC, one in four girls and somewhere between one in six and one in 13 boys will be molested by the age of 18. Yeah. That's horrific. It is. Um, so if, if you're listening to this and thinking, well, that didn't happen in my family, that would never happen in my family, I guarantee you know someone. You know, yeah, just like um, whether they've acknowledged it or not. And one of the studies that I read about um, victim recovery, um, in that particular study, the average age for a victim to uh, tell another person what happened was 42. So they've carried around this lifetime of shame, of guilt, of fear, of depression, of anxiety, of trauma. Um alone mm-hmm. and what a what a toll that takes on someone's mental health, their physical health, their spirit, their emotional development, their ability to connect with other people and trust others, their ability to form healthy relationships, their ability to parent. Um, we have to disrupt this cycle and put this stuff in the sunlight. Um, add a layer of disinfectant Mm -hmm. and support. Um, I was very fortunate in that when I did speak with the police, I cooperated fully. I was never investigated. My kids were not taken from me. I I had a lot of support. But what was shocking to me is that the office, the investigating officer, told me that in 20 years of working child sex crimes, I was the second mother who believed their child and follow through the prosecution. That's wild. It is wild. And the reason that those other mothers didn't cooperate, I'm sure, was not that they didn't love their kids, but they had all of these additional fears. Fears. And if the offender was somebody in their family, 
then we're looking at economics. How am I going to pay the rent without their income? How am I going to feed my kids? What's my family going to say? What's the community going to say? I dared people, say something to me. Just go ahead. And you did. You had one friend who gave you this guilt. <laughs> like, tried to. Tried to guilt trip you. Oh, and yeah. no. And that, didn't, <laughs> that did not fly with Tracy. No, it did not. And um, I joke around um, now, um, 20 years later, um, but I'm a very different person today than I was in 2003. In 2003, I was much nicer. <laughs> I had a much um, happier worldview. Today, I will look you in the eye and say, try me. Yeah. What would you say today? What, describe that as naive? Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we have this worldview that as long as you follow the rules and you do what you're supposed to do, bad things aren't going to happen to you. And that's just not real. And I think that that's so, um, one of the things that little kids would latch on to is like, did I do something bad again? Mm. You know? And, or in this, you know, these, the list of the, the grooming stages, getting told how special they are as if a parent, which, hey, not everybody's going to be at 100% every single day in the parenting world. But, I mean, to think that you're not special in your own family, so this other person makes you special, or even if it is in your own family, like, oh, well, you know, you're my oldest daughter. You're special. Yeah. And and it's it's such a sick and twisted way of gaining control over vulnerable children by taking something that should be wonderful and beautiful and and, pure, and, yeah, and, and bolstering and turn it into something disgusting and hideous. Yeah. And, I mean, and what what good does it do those other children? They're, I mean, kids are smarter than people give them credit for. And if they think somebody's a favorite, I'm using air quotes here, they see it. They might not know what's happening, but they see it. And um, and honestly, like one of the worst cases, which goes to show that it has nothing to do with your economic class status, is the Menendez brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating study. They are real people. So, I mean, I don't like to objectify them, but... You know, as one was getting abused, he saw his younger brother was starting, you know, dad was starting to show those same particular behaviors of getting him alone and telling mom, don't disturb me for an hour. And now she was very complicit, which is very different than not knowing. Yeah. And, And that was probably one of the hardest things for me emotionally to deal with was people who did look at me and think, well, you lived in a house. You had to know. Of course you had to know. You just didn't want to see it. That was actually word for word. Um, I, I'm i sure. because a family member said to me. How could you, yeah, they, they could say, how could you not know? It's like, you're not. And, and it's gutting. But I worked. I went to school. I 
you know, right. get out of the house socially. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, not always there. And when my daughter was about 10, I did notice some changes in her. Her grades were dropping. She was very depressed. Um, and I took her to the school psychologist. I took her to the pediatrician because um, I was very concerned. And we all ended up deciding that it was probably um, depression, which ran in both of our families as she was moving into adolescence. We moved every few years. My, my ex-husband was a research scientist, so every two, three years we'd finish a project and move someplace else. And that seemed like a reasonable explanation until it wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, so that is, that is definitely one of the things that I had to toughen up um, in terms of my interactions with other people in my circle who felt like it was okay to judge me. Mm -hmm. um, and that was hard. Yeah. I don't know if that's something everybody would think of ahead of time, if that would be one of the fears that kept them from seeking help. Um, so the church that you were part of back then, were they any help at all? No. Um, in fact, um, I can't remember anybody in leadership coming to make sure that we were okay although they did send someone to the prison every week to see my ex-husband um, right. until he was transferred. Um, and that was hard. That felt very much like a betrayal. Yeah. For sure. So you have to start your life in all kinds of different areas then. And I had to rebuild what my life looked like. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, 20 years on, my life is kick-ass, and it's great, and I'm thankful. Um, but it did not um, come without a price. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the things that I have marked off in the book is that you took control of the money. Um, Damn straight. Very yeah, fast. Very fast. So um, that might be, like we were saying, one of the reasons that people hesitate in leaving, you know, they, or kicking somebody out. Um, how, how on earth do you go about taking control of family finances if you've got joint access? I changed the pin on the debit card. Um, okay. I couldn't take him off the account, but I also made it much more difficult for him <laughs> to access the account. Okay. For sure. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> you gave him days to go to the police instead of the police coming to the house. And well, he was on the run. After I confronted him that Friday night, um, he was like, well, where am I supposed to go? Well, you have to get a hotel, and tomorrow we can go see the sheriff. Um, he didn't show back up the next day to go see the sheriff. He disappeared. And that was actually one of the scariest parts, because he ha was not 
arrested. He there was no warrant out for him, so he yeah, could so have, nobody was looking for him. He could have walked in the schools, picked up kids, and left with them, and that would have been that. So I actually kept them all home until um, he was in custody. Um, right. He did show up after five days, um, haggard. He um, had. It, in looking at his car after he was arrested. He had bought camping equipment and had food in there, and it was clear that he was he was going to try to stay in the mountains somewhere and, and had maps of North Carolina um, where it looked like he was planning to go. But because I had cut off his access to money, um, he could only go to me or go to his parents. <laughs> that was it. And uh, I... When he showed back up five days later, I talked him into turning himself in, that that convinced him that that was the only way this was going to be resolved. And uh, he did, but I think he did with the thought that um, it worked out okay for his dad, so it was going to work out okay for him too. And, and from my understanding, <laughs> he was surprised by the divorce. <laughs> He really was. In fact, he wrote a letter. He, he said, reinstate my marriage yes. to the judge. I'm like, <laughs> what? I've never heard of such He sure bullshit. did. And I worked <laughs> in the courthouse, and boy, the, the secretaries were like, did you see what your ex-husband sent to the judge? And I was horrified. They laughed about it. I was like, I'm sorry. I know it's very strange. Yeah. So, um, and I think that he held out hope that that... Things would go back to normal um, for quite some time. Um, as you alluded to earlier, I did remarry, mm -hmm. um, and um, my second husband and I, when we had a child, I think that's when my ex-husband finally um, realized, recognized that it was over, done. And and I will say, you know, that. The daughter who suffered through this grew up to be an amazing person. She is, and I'm not allowed to talk about how amazing no, she is. No, I know. But she is um, she's thriving, and she is somebody that is a she's so model, smart. model of female empowerment mm. in a male-dominated world that most people would be like, wow, that's amazing. And yes. she is. She also, one of the things that I, I talk about in the book, she was very resistant to counseling. Didn't want anything to right. do with it. Right. Was, I was surprised by that. She thought that the therapists were perverts for wanting to talk about what happened. Okay. And the I, way, I understand that. Yeah. But the way that she dealt with it was feeling powerful. So she went to the police academy, mm -hmm. graduated. Um, after that, she decided, I think I'm going to go in the Marines. She already had a degree, so she could have gone in as an officer. She refused. She wanted the enlisted experience, mm -hmm. so she went in as enlisted and came out as a sergeant. Um, then when she came out of the Marines, she was like, and now I'm going to be an engineer, and decided to go back to college, oh. got another degree in engineering, and uh, she is amazing. But that was one of the things that... I did not know being trained as a clinician until I had this experience is that therapy isn't isn't the automatic right thing for everyone. 
and she had to get to a place and time in her life where she could sit down and talk about it. So 15 years later, mm -hmm. after this came out, she decided she was going to go to therapy. She found a therapist she liked, and she kept calling me saying, Mom, did you know blah, blah, blah? Yes, I told mm -hmm. you that 15 <laughs> years ago, but okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the point being that she got help when she was ready. Um, I kept trying to force it. And I had to recognize that um, you can't force someone to get help. They that's, have to be ready. Yeah, that's one of the things that in, in that particular chapter um, that's in your lessons learned section. Um, because the other children clearly could have uh, gone through therapy as well, um, knowing that, first of all, like your dad didn't just disappear and they never talked about it it was dad's going to prison for doing this mm -hmm. and they were told um yes and at different ages so how um how how do you talk to a child so young about their own family i mean yeah. i've seen like how detectives would do it and you know but so draw my, this picture here's this doll but yeah. My youngest was six, almost seven, when this happened. And the one who took it hardest was my eight-year-old. And um, when we explained that dad wasn't coming home, he had hurt someone, and he had to go to jail for a while, she was heartbroken. She carried around his picture. She wailed, calling out for her dad. And it was awful. Um, it was so gutting to hear how devastated she was. And um, when we explained that the person that he had hurt was her sister, mm -hmm. we didn't go into any details of how he hurt her or anything like that, just that he hurt her. And her sister said, yep, that's true. That's what helped her to get a a context I think for it and she was still sad sure. but but she wasn't as heartbroken I think because her solidarity was with her sister mm -hmm. um, fast forward now 20 years a couple years ago this child started having flashbacks to having been abused which we didn't know um, which was also devastating and brought open this whole new um, area for healing that we didn't know we had to deal with. Mm -hmm. By her dad? By her dad. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and when you think about how much trauma this one person wrought, um, and a lot of lives. It, it is. And the thing that I have learned is that it's not just number of people, but also over time. There are still shards that come up every every so often of of aftershocks from what happened. It it's our lives are good and our lives are largely happy, but they're not totally healed. Mm -hmm. I can't say that they are because there are still areas that have to be addressed. 
Yeah, and I mean, he's still alive. And True. Is he a part of their lives? Not at all, okay. no. And in fact, um, after he was convicted, the prosecutor actually sat down with my daughter and me to talk about what, do you, what, what would you like to see in a perfect world. He didn't get as much time as we had hoped that he would, but we did ask for mandatory therapy post-incarceration until my youngest was 18 um, because I felt like if left to his own devices, he could be bitter, he could be vengeful, he could be spiteful, there could be all kinds of negative outcomes, and I wanted eyes on it. Mm -hmm. um, and he was bitterly um, angry about that. I'm assuming he still had like a parole officer to check in with? He did um, for a period of time, but once, uh, oh, okay. once parole ended, um, okay. he um, could have just been in the wind, but the therapy, at least I knew that there was a clinician who was keeping an eye on what was happening. Okay. Um, would an, you know, someone else going through this feel secure that somebody's going to be checking on that abuser? I would think so. Yeah, because I, that's one of the the scary unknowns, right? Mm -hmm. What are they thinking? What are they planning? What are they doing? And when he was released from prison, I admit I kept an extra eye around my house. I made sure my doors were locked. We lived by a cornfield, so I and I would, you know, peek out the corn to see what was going on. Um, and there are some who might think that that was an unreasonable fear, but it was still a fear for me. That is he going to reintegrate into society, or is he going to seek revenge? Is he going to kill himself in my front yard? Yeah, um, which of course I, he threatened. Yeah, and which he had threatened to, and I, I think that that was. A valid fear. Uh, well, I just learned about um, uh, there's two websites that I uh, websites po podcasts that I listen to pertaining to writers and law enforcement. So that we crime writers, when we come up with mysteries, you know, we have resources to get some things right. And obviously, that does depend town to town, state by state. Um, but I just learned about the Vine. Uh, mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> website. Very familiar with Vine because every time he, he moved, I would get noticed. You would get noticed. noticed. So um, is that something that a victim has to sign up for? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you do have to sign up for it. And I, I'm i signed up to now as um, he's a registered sex offender. So every time he registers a new address, I'm notified. What about your kids? Of it. They never signed up for it. But okay. they, they depend on me to keep them to, right, okay. updated. But they could. They could, yeah. Okay. Um, because they make it sound so easy in these in fiction where it's like, oh, so-and-so, you know, you're going to prison and you're going to be a registered sex offender and, you know, you have to go knocking door to door and telling your neighbors, you know, that you're on this list when you get out. And it's not like that. Not at all. Because as no. we were t discussing before hitting record, there is somebody in my neighborhood who was a sex offender. Um and this was before the internet. So this, <laughs> this was like just small town gossip, you know, that, you know, 
one fireman turned to another fireman who heard from a cop who, you know, and it ended out all ended up. I mean, you can find out, but it's the responsibility of of you yeah. to take the time to look through the sex offender registry. You put in your address, and they'll tell you who's around within. But does that cost money? No, it's free. Okay. Yeah, it's free. I was always afraid to, like, look because of, I was like, I, A, I thought there would be some kind of fee. Like, you know how if you Google search anybody, um, yeah. <laughs> it gives you these fake, fake we'll, scanning things? We'll tell you. We'll tell you. For, for, for a price. Yeah, for $50. Um, and it pretends that it's scanning records. These, these websites are so devious. And it's like scanning for liens, scanning for foreclosures, scanning for criminal offenses. And it's like, no, you're not. You're a taskbar. You're, I mean, it's like you're yeah. just an animated graphic. And then it'll be like, why, yes, we found six offenses, but we'll tell you what it is for $49.99. <laughs> well, and, and the New Jersey State Police, they have a, a free website. If you click on Sex Offender Registry NJ, okay. you do have to promise that you will not target them. You right. will not hurt them in any way. You won't do anything um, punitive. And then it will transfer you to the New Jersey State Police, at least here. Um, and then when you type in your address, it will tell you um, who's around your house. Mm -hmm. So as we're talking, I'm, I'm looking in here at our new address, and I have five offenders within five miles of my house, which is actually fewer than I was expecting. Um, but we don't know this unless we go mm -hmm. look for it. And, and that's one of the other takeaways, I think, from our family's story. Not that this would have made a difference in our world, but um, where my ex-husband lives now, if there are families in their neighborhood, if they know that he has this history, they might steer clear mm -hmm. of him and, and make but, their kids aware. Yeah, but they don't have to go door to door and say, I'm moving no. into condo 2B. Not even kind of, sort of. Okay, that's. I I think maybe in the early stages of developing that system, they might have wanted that or talked. To, maybe I don't know. But I remember that being thrown about somewhere that somebody would have to go door to door and say, you know. Yeah. No. That and that's that's punitive and humiliating and yeah. and and is only going to serve to further alienate these people. Mm -hmm. Um, from their communities. They need therapy. They need meaningful therapy. They need oversight. Um, there are sex offender programs. Um, you know, is my ex-husband cured? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And if he's re-offended, I hope not. But I do know that being marginalized by being disenfranchised, um, struggling to find a place to live, um, none of that is going to help reintegrate a healthy person into society. And that's a broader discussion, I grant you. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I do think that we need to do a better job of fixing instead of um, making, making it worse. Well, while you were, while he was in prison and you 
were trying to continue with life. I know he kept the kids out of school for a couple of days, and um, and you, like you said, you changed the pin numbers. So that was one way to have access to some money. But how would he pay child support while incarcerated? He didn't, and that was actually very. Um, that was a choice on my part. When we got divorced, my attorney said, you know, we need to set up child support. And my response to him was, obviously, he's not earning any income while he's in prison. But he and when have, he comes out, right. he's going to have this giant debt, and there's no way he's going to be able to pay it. So it seemed like a pointless exercise. So he had a 401k that was $33,000. dollars and so as part of the divorce settlement, he agreed to give me that in lieu of child support. By the time you paid the penalties and yes, everything for a lot of hefty penalties on that. Right. So it came out to $20,000 or something. But I paid off his debts and took the balance and used that in lieu of child support. And did, did he sell a car or something? Or you sold I, the car? I, we had a Prius because he was like, oh, this new Prius is out. This is awesome. Um, so we had just bought a Prius. I sold that and uh, put in a pool and bought a Toyota Echo instead. <laughs> but uh, I put in an above-ground pool, and the kids and I put up a fence in the backyard. And they at least had something entertaining um, yeah. that came of it. I tried to create... A sense of normalcy for them and um, if you do any kind of medication or any kind of um, trauma therapeutic practice one of the best things is a schedule and a routine and um, having expectations that are clear and that's what and I that's once you're safe I would say exactly because otherwise stuck is very easily learn routines and follow them um no for but, sure but yeah for sure once but, you're safe but in terms of recovery for the kids yes that's they, what I was trying to create they stayed in school yes um, they stayed in school they had chores they still did their extracurricular activities they had the swimming pool to play in um it it wasn't easy by any means but in talking with them as adults that was one of the things that many of them, because I have five, had five kids, um, that they felt was particularly helpful, was to go back to some sense of normal routine because mm -hmm. it felt safe. So when you started going through this 20 years ago, and I know when I was going through um, the, just a regular boring, uneventful divorce. Um, I'm a note taker. I kept notes of everything, you know, again, you know, some of this pre-internet stuff, um, journals of like every phone call, what was said. And so did you start thinking I have to write a book or did you just um, think that you were you would write things down for catharsis. This was actually my ex-husband's idea. Um, not long after he was incarcerated, he said, 
you should write a book about this to help other families. We could write it together. His motivation was less about helping other people okay. and more in keeping me engaged in his Keep, life. Yeah, keeping you attached. Uh, exactly. Um, but the idea of it felt very selfish to not share what I learned from being on both sides of the table with other people. Um, so back in like 2019, I would say, I started kicking around the idea and I, I talked to my, my current husband and he said, <laughs> what do you think? And he was like, whatever you want, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would go off and go through my, my journal stuff, go through the, um, the filings from the court and it would jog my memory about things that I had forgotten. Um, and I, like I said, I, I wanted to keep it purposefully short, but I also wanted to pull on the threads of commonality, like our family's experience is our family's experience, but figuring out how to deal with the economics right. is going to be a common thread. How do you talk with people in the extended family? Who do you tell about this? How do you deal with your own self-care when you have all these things going on? What do you do when your kid's in free fall? What kind of therapy works? How do you set appropriate boundaries? So that was my foundational thought, was I'll share our story, but pull on these common experiences and share what we did and what I've learned from the literature since that um, is best practice or, or helpful. Right. And... How much do you know about outside of New Jersey? Because you, you've lived a couple places. But well, this actually happened in Florida. Okay. Um, so actually my master's thesis was on um, recovery protocols in northwest Florida versus northwest New Jersey for child sexual abuse victims. So I you know, intimately know both systems um, pretty well. Um, but I did, at the end of the book, put national resources um, there that people can, can check out and visit. We also have a website, theshadowinourlives.com, where I also put many um, resources right. that people can um, check out. And since you made your life um, working with kids in the foster care system, is there anything to do um, to break the notion that every foster kid is going to go from house to house every couple months and be terribly abused, like you see on TV? Yeah, no. <laughs> um, every kid in care's experience is different. And in 2018, Congress passed the Families First legislation which has resulted in an overhaul of the foster care system in the sense that um, their priority is looking at kin placements of family members um, instead of kids going from unrelated home to unrelated home. So that is, statistically speaking, most of us have at least one family member who's healthy and doing okay and can be helpful. 
it might take a little while to find them. That has been a really um, helpful uh, resource for kids in foster care because kids need to feel connected. They need to feel safe. They need to have some sense of continuity of a family story. Um, there's a growing field of positive childhood experiences of, well, on Christmas Eve, we open one present and then we open the rest the next day. And that's, you know, one of their fondest childhood memories. It's building those positive childhood experiences um, that can help mitigate the damage done by adverse childhood experiences. Um, that's a whole other section that I put in the book talking about adverse childhood experiences or ACEs mm -hmm. and how that can impact kids' brain development and their subsequent behaviors and how we can insulate them um, when bad things happen. My mom was friends with um, people who also did work uh, for a different county. Um, they were foster parents and um, they had managed to uh, actually go through the process and adopt um, because they they got somebody who was a little baby. Mm -hmm. um, so for that child, that couple was really the only parents that they knew. And it was able to work out that they got an adoption. And in other situations, um, it was in the news years ago uh, but this goes on this is hey colonialism we um, it was a, a couple who adopted I think a Native American child or fostered or whatever but the child was six years old they were the only parents she knew um, but there's this terrible history of white people stealing other babies. Yeah, for sure. Um, if you don't know about that, please look it up because it's, you know. There's actually a, um, a really good podcast on Reveal that came out a couple months ago about the native boarding schools and talked a lot yeah. about um, the long-term impact on those communities. And I know Canada's finally talking about it. Yes. Because Canada's got a dark history with it as well. They do. Um, <laughs> us down here in the lower 48, you know, we always think of Canada as like, oh my God, lovely neighbors up north. Yes, <laughs> everything's perfect there. Um, but yeah, I, I read a book um, about somebody who was dealing with that and the poverty within the indigenous community yeah. and stuff. And it was up like in the Edmonton area. And, and that's actually one of the things that I do recognize, that as well-educated upper-middle-class white people, um, our outcomes have been extraordinarily good, um, as well as could be expected, um, given the circumstances, but that might not hold true for everyone. Mm -hmm. So when you were writing this, um, was it... Um, did you start with an outline and a breakdown of these are the things I'm, I want to address? No. No, I actually just started going through the story chronologically in my head. Okay. Um, and 
as I went through, I, I, my initial drafts had the, what I learned, what I would have done differently. And some of the feedback I got was it's disruptive to the storytelling. And I took it out oh. and then I was thought, nope, I'm putting it back in. I really like it. Cause that's the whole point of it is to, to help synthesize, um, action items for people. So I put it back in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think it's, better for the book I mean it's an incredible memoir otherwise but like you said to be more to be something more and be an actual tool for people um, I think those parts at the end of each chapter add value I have a friend who suggested that with uh, the next iteration that in the at the end of those sections to have worksheets Mm -hmm. for people to, to start breaking down in their own, you know, who are my resources? What am I doing for self-care? I was thinking of that as I was reading it. Yeah. I was like, I could easily see, you know, somebody, if their state of mind is okay, to think, oh, well, in this case, Tracy went and talked to this person in this organization. What would I do? What would my plan be? Mm-hmm. Um, or especially if they need to take action, but they they can't really get there just yet yeah to give Um, a framework for that yeah um and then so when you had the draft who was allowed to read it before publishing so my second daughter read it the the younger one who had been so devastated um that's actually what triggered the flashbacks for her was Mm -hmm. reading this manuscript um I have a friend who was a publisher, uh, an editor, I should say, at Putnam, another friend who's got a PhD in Russian history, <laughs> and then a friend of mine who was there um, for all of this. Those were the four people that I had look at it, both from an eye of editing, but also for accuracy. Did I miss something? Did I misrepresent anything? Um, and once I got all of their feedback and cleaned it up, I um, I actually finished it in the summer of 2020. Um, and then I sat on it. Um, well, we were in pandemic. Yeah. So, <laughs> And it wasn't until um, December of 2022 that I thought, you know what? I just need to pull the trigger, get it out send it into the universe to do whatever work it's supposed to do mm-hmm. and, and be done. So. And so now it's out there. Uh, have you considered other formats like making an audio book? I've actually had several requests for an audio book. And okay. uh, when I get a little bit of time and space, that's actually one of the things on my, my list. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I know that a lot of people listen while they travel and things yeah. like that. So. Yeah, you can digest information differently. Um, So before uh, we wrap up, is there anything that you want to talk about, about your experience writing all of this down? Um, It was cathartic, but it was also hard. Um, I was very fortunate in that I have husband number two Mm -hmm. who is always there with a hug and a cup of tea or what do you want for dinner when I would come out of those dark spaces Um, I think the in addition to information about 
coping and parenting and resources that I wanted to convey with this is that there is hope for things to get better. It can feel so hopeless and so dark and like a never-ending nightmare. Um, there were many nights those first few years that I just cried and I didn't want my kids to see me fall apart. So once I got everybody bathed, fed, off to bed, I'd go in my room and cry. Mm -hmm. And and it was it was awful and hard. Um, but things are so much better. And I didn't know then, or maybe didn't believe then, that there was hope for a much happier future. Well, when you were able to reconnect with the love of your life, your first love <laughs> of your life, um, he came with a couple of kids as well. So now we have this gigantic family, and then you had one more. Um, so we, you, we have eight. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so many different age ranges and, and things. Um, it's, yeah, so it's an, an incredibly large family. So again, that's more people um, that are involved and connected to this tragic story, um, even though they are good parts of it. Now, um, I know one of the children is disabled and has special needs. You mentioned that in here, otherwise I wouldn't bring it up. Um, so she's not gonna really, I don't think, I don't know, would she understand? She wouldn't, she's, she's my husband's biological child, right. and so um, she was not there for any of that. But right. um, yeah, she's um, intellectually about one years old, so none right. of this is resonant with her. Um, I did have a conversation with my stepson, you know, a few over the years about um, you know, what my ex-husband did, that he was incarcerated, um, because I, I really have come to see the incredible harm with family secrets, and I wanted him to hear from me what, what was real, what was true. Um, and, and that's been a good, a good thing, I think, as, even if it's painful, um, I think it's important that there's honesty, that there's transparency um, at whatever level that child is at, because knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. When we keep information from kids that can keep them safe, it, it puts them at risk. Mm -hmm. Is there, um, I, since we are, you know, we, we're talking about books and, and information, I know that there's been, not only in schools, but in the prison systems, a big crackdown on what books are allowed to be available. Don't even get me started on that, Amber. That's, <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> book burners, nothing ever good came from book banners, book burners. They're on the wrong side of history. But for people who are looking for resources for recovery from this, there's um, one called The Body Keeps the Score right. by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, who is the, the father of this research. You it's very sciencey, but um, still accessible because that was part of my studies as well. Mm -hmm. um, there is another one that um, Oprah Winfrey and um, is it Dr. Stephen Perry um, that talked about um, what happened to you. Oh, I, um, 
and make sure that I'm, I'm telling you right. Yes, what's happened to you? Conversations on trauma, resilience, and healing. Um, and that is um, by both Oprah Winfrey and um, Dr. Bruce Perry, that's his name. Okay. Um, that's, that focuses more on people's individual experiences and how do we reframe what happened to them in a way that we can be supportive instead of shaming and instead of saying what's wrong with you Amber mm-hmm. say what happened to you Amber and give people an opportunity to f- have a platform to talk instead of putting them on the defensive well, what I like about um, Vander Kolk's um, process is that it's where we developed um, therapeutically to work with the body, hence the body keeps score. Um, Just becoming aware of the body, moving the body. This is a a lot of, um, as I said, yoga practitioners become aware of um, that there are certain therapists who will, when they say something like, maybe you should try yoga, it's not about relaxing. It's not about you're going to go and relax. You're going to go into a room with a bunch of other people. That might not be relaxing at all. Mm-hmm. Right. It's about you and your body. And regaining and, control yes. over your body. And when you go into a yoga studio, if it's practicing safety guidelines, at any time, you can just go to your mat and, and, and chill. Um, you don't have to be doing the things that other people are doing. Right. I, I mean, I had someone today and it was just a matter of motion sickness that she need, you know, I was like, yeah. you need to, t- you need to sit, you know? Exactly. Uh, there, the, another resource that I can recommend is The Deepest Well by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris that also talks about managing those lifelong impacts of adverse childhood experiences. But the one I would recommend the most is The Shadow in Our Lives by Tracy by Heiss. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, in terms of being... Um, a very practical look at how how to manage through these difficult things. Right. Um, so, besides the website, um, is there anything else that you want people to know about on about following you and when if there's a new edition? I, I know on Amazon you can follow people, mm-hmm. and I don't know if folks are aware of that, but when you buy a book. Usually asks you if you want to follow the author over on the left-hand side, uh, and you can also message me directly. You can yeah connect via email, right here at the bottom left. It says connect with Tracy, and uh, a window will pop up, and okay. you can shoot me an email. Okay. Um, well, that's great. So it, it's the shadow in our lives at gmail.com. Good to know. That's what it is. And like I said, you know, take advantage of that following the author um, option because um, there may be new additions. For sure. And if there's any resources um, that you want to ask specifically about, like I said, I will answer anything that you send to me. And uh, I am very accessible. Um, and there's also a Facebook page, um, the, the Shadow in Our Lives as well, that you can follow. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this today. It's not a super happy topic, but um, I do think that there are a lot of people who 
want and need information and just don't know where to go. So thank you. Oh, leaving reviews. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing. I didn't know that that was a thing until I saw one pop up and I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> Authors love, love reviews. We probably shouldn't read them. In fact, professional authors who get like, you know, 20,000 reviews, they'll tell you, oh, don't read your reviews. Because reviews are for other readers. They're not necessarily feedback for the author. But in that case, um, it's still really important because if you find value in this book, then someone else reading your review will say, hey, maybe I'll find something useful from that book too. Right. Yeah. That's so it. thank you. Thanks for that plug. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so stay tuned to more from Vodka Clock Podcast. Again, you can find me at patreon.com slash amberonmast. And amberonmast on Instagram, also for plenty of critter and cat pictures. There's lots of them there. I would like to say, uh, I guess, take care for everybody. Thank you. Thank you.